So let me ask you a question, sort of a riddle. What do these four dates have in common? Now, when you figure it out, don't blurt it out, but some of you will. The 28th of January, 1996. The 19th of June, 1999. The 12th of June, 2011. And here's the real hint. The 1st of November, 2023. If you don't know yet, this will give you a clue. Ernest Thayer wrote these words in 1888 as a metaphor for the republic in sports terms. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one more inning to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. You will remember probably from grade school or middle school the poem by Thayer. It goes on in the middle of the the poem. It says, Then from 5,000 throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley and it rattled in the dell. It pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. Well, you know what happened. The poem closes this way. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has what? Struck out. So what were those four dates? They were sports events. 28 January 1996, the Cowboys won their last Super Bowl, number 30, by beating the Steelers, 27-17. Great joy in Mudville. The 19th of June, the Stars won the Stanley Cup in the third overtime by a disputed but legitimate goal in the third overtime against Buffalo. The 12th of June, 2001, the Mavericks won their one and only NBA championship by beating the Miami Heat, 105-95 in game six. And when I said 1 November 2023, you diehard Ranger fans know, of course, they finally, after 62 years as a franchise and 51 years in the Metroplex, won the World Series by defeating Arizona 5-1 to in game number five. These, indeed, were days of joy for those living in Texas and the Metroplex specifically. We take a lot of joy in our sports events. I do. I love watching the stars. You know that. Uh, You know, that's quite an industry. Almost half a trillion dollars globally is earned, expended on sports events so people can experience at least momentary joy or in the wide world of sports terms, the agony of what? Defeat. Today is the 38th message in the series on Jesus imperatives, and I have to confess to you that because we did not plan to do specifically sermons on hope, peace, joy, love, and light this year, I was going to preach through this series regardless of what the week was, regardless of what the theme of Advent was, and I made this schedule over a year ago, not knowing that this text would be the text that would come up today. Rejoice and be glad. Who do you think planned that? We know who did. 
You know, it's an uncommon phrase in the New Testament. When you put rejoice and be glad together, it's found only four times in the New Covenant, New Testament. But it's extensively used in the Old Testament, at least 13 times in the Psalms, and double that throughout the Old Testament. And almost everywhere that it is used, it expresses one of three things. Appreciation, praise for God's deliverance, God's mercy, and God's presence and holiness. The first instance that it is used is in First Chronicles chapter 16. It's when David has arranged the arrival of, and he has built a tent for, to receive the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. And there is great, great rejoicing and gladness in Jerusalem. The other text near the end of the Old Covenant, next to the last text, is the one that you heard Norma read this morning from Zephaniah 3. And in that text, it's before the exile, but it is talking about the restoration by God of the people of God from exile. And if you listen closely to that text, there, there was a great reversal from judgment and enemies and oppressors and disaster and fear and grief and reproach and shame on the one side. And in God's deliverance, then, joy and rejoicing, exultation, praise, and they would experience renown and their fortunes would be restored. That is a godly kind of joy. You know, worldly joy is inadequate, and I think we all know that. It's temporary in sports terms. You know, the word to be glad means to leap up. And it reminds me of going to Stars games. Every time the Stars win, I mean, every time the Stars score a goal, almost everybody leaps up, jumps up, and four times they say, go, what do they say, Dave? Stars. <laughs> go Stars. Four times. And there's great joy temporarily. Last night there was great joy two times when the stars scored first, but that joy lasts only as long as or until the next team scores. Three times, by the way. <laughs> and then there's great anxiety. Days of joy in DFW provide good memories, yes, but they don't guarantee future success. They don't guarantee future joy. In fact, the real joy lasts only until the next season, which is overcome by anxiety, whether or not we will make the playoffs. You see, that's the way earthly joy is. It's temporary. In politics, it's the same way. We're going into the political presidential election season. And you know what's going to happen next November? Many of us will stay up late at night and we'll watch the returns from the states. And when our candidate wins a state, we will feel joyful. And then when the other candidate wins a state, uh, a, a state then we will feel unjoyful. And at the end of the night, there's a great victory celebration for the winner. But you know what happens two years later? That joy dissipates, dissolves when the ratings of the new president are at the bottom. And it always happens that way. Joy is temporary. Money satisfies immediate needs. But there's an anxiety that's associated with that. We may be able to meet our immediate needs today. And even if we have money in the bank... We are anxious about whether or not we'll have enough for daily bread tomorrow. And it creates a desire for money, and that's what the Scripture tells us is the source of all evil. Money itself is not bad. It does provide to help us with meeting immediate needs. But the desire for money begins to take over. 
and it becomes the root of all evil, and it does not guarantee permanent security. Reminded of this when we think of Mansa Musa I. Who in the world was Mansa Musa? Well, he was probably the richest person in the whole world in the 14th century. He had a personal worth in 2023 terms of about $400 billion. He was the ruler of the Mali Empire, the greatest empire in Central Africa in all of history, the richest African empire ever. If you take a look today, though, however, at the 10 nations that have come out of that empire, they are no longer the richest nations in the world. They rank in the bottom one-third, averaging 123 out of 173 in rankings of richness in the world. Riches are temporary, and they do not guarantee future success. Peace is the same way. We pray for peace. We fight wars to bring peace. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? World War I proved to us that there is no war that ends all wars. It's temporary. Worldly peace is ephemeral. It's illusory. You see, you can't bottle it up. You can't capture it. It's, it's sort of like going out at night. You remember some of you, I don't know if you kids still do it nowadays, but we used to go out at night in the early summer with a jar with holes in the top of the metal cup, uh, top, and we would capture what? Fireflies. You know, we thought, well, we capture the fireflies, and then I can take it into my room, and, and I'll have a light at night. You know, it was really kind of a mystical experience. So you captured some fireflies, and yeah, for a while you could see them, and then you got up the next morning, and the, and the fireflies were what? Dead in the bottom of the jar. It's sort of like that. You, you can't capture joy. You see, because joy depends on circumstances, and those circumstances, friends, are almost always beyond our control. We cannot manage and capture joy. Joy is not fully satisfying. True joy, I think, depends on this. It's really a deep contentment. It's almost inexplicable. A deep contentment that comes from freedom from anxiety and no dependence on anything that cannot satisfy. But if you stop and think about it, the things that we really need in life we're not always guaranteed of. And those worldly things do not fill the void of our deepest needs. Our deepest needs, Maslow tells us, are physical provision, safety and security, love and belonging, self-esteem and respect, and fulfilling our purpose and potential in life. You see, these ephemeral, temporary things of this world do not meet those needs. The joy of the world can become addictive. A taste of momentary happiness. One victory on the football field or the basketball court. It begins to create an insatiable desire for more. And there's this quest for joy, whatever it is that we see as the source of our worldly joy. And it becomes a kind of unrequited craving, never fully satisfied, and we become obsessed with it. That is worldly joy. Biblical sources before Christ that speak about joy and gladness, you may be surprised to hear me say this, also fell short. For example, 
when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Great joy. God is with us. The problem is that that was temporary. It was temporary and it was incomplete. It was temporary because eventually the Ark would be captured and probably destroyed. We don't know what happened to it. It was incomplete because Hebrews tells us that the temple and also the ark were an incomplete shadow of the perfect which was to come. You see, because the ark only represented the presence of God. God could not be housed in a temple, much less an ark. No, in fact, Christ's advent, the nativity, brings permanent and complete presence of God. For we know Emmanuel means what? Emmanuel means what? God with us. Think about Zephaniah's prophecy. It was temporary and incomplete as well. It restored the exiles and it fulfilled that promise, but they weren't restored to the former glory of David's kingdom. They were still subject to Persian rule. And later the, Jew, the, the Jews indeed were conquered again by the Greeks and then the Romans. But Christ's advent, you see, fulfills Zephaniah's prophecy Fully. For Christ's advent, His coming, He brought and inaugurated the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and not just David's worldly kingdom. And it brought the promise of permanent joy and gladness. Advent joy, friends, is different than worldly joy. This is the third Sunday of Advent, after, of course, hope and peace. And the nativity accounts open this way. They open with joy. Matthew 2, you know the story of the Magi. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and it stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, these Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Lucan account, you know it very well. We rehearse it. We read it every Christmas. We'll read it again on Christmas Eve. The shepherds hear the angels who said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy that will be for all people. For you see, today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, this is Advent joy. There, there, I'm going to say something controversial, I think. At this point, there's great inertia in those texts. There's great power and momentum in those texts, but that nativity joy was not complete. You see, it had to be fulfilled. There was great joy when the Magi saw the star then over Bethlehem, and then they saw the babe and they came and worshiped. But you see, the Magi returned to the east without fully understanding what it meant. The shepherds returned to their flocks, even though they... They told the people what they had seen when they went to Bethlehem, but they returned to their flocks not really understanding fully what they had seen. Even Simeon and Anna in the temple, though they were satisfied because God had sent the hope of Israel and the light to the Gentiles, they still did not fully understand what it meant. Mary magnified the Lord and she pondered those things where? In her heart. But Mary, did you know? Did you really know fully what that meant? You see, there's great powerful inertia in the joy of the nativity, but it is made full in the Son of Man. 
nativity joy was made complete in the life of Jesus Christ and in the testimony of the New Testament apostles that bore witness to it. You see, this child of adoration, this babe that we adore, he didn't stay a babe. He grew in wisdom and stature and what? And favor with God and man. And Jesus, the Son of God, grew to become the Son of Man who was the prophetic Son of Man who clarified and fulfilled the promise. Nativity joy gives it the momentum and He fulfills it. He came preaching the good news in Galilee. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is upon us. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. And we can know God's blessedness, he said. We can know full joy, not just worldly joy, if we follow Jesus and what he taught us and if we obey it. You see, complete joy is possible only because the babe in the manger grew to be a man, the son of God and the son of man, and he fulfilled the law and the prophets. He overcame every obstacle that stands between us and eternal joy and happiness, that is, sin and death. He suffered. He was persecuted. You heard Ildiko talk about persecution this morning. He suffered and he died and he rose again to defeat sin and death. That nativity babe grew to be a man then who not only died, was buried and resurrected, but is glorified and he promises today to walk with us and to give us joy that is abundant and to make it complete. You see, full nativity joy is more than adoring a babe in a manger. We know that. It's more than coming once or twice or three times during the year, specially to give homage to Him. It is more than seasonal worship of the babe. You see, nativity joy leads to a deep contentment and peace only when we surrender all of ourselves totally to Him. When we respond to His call to follow Him every step of the way, to stick with Him through thick and thin. And, and Jesus describes the result of this in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. When we follow Him, we are transformed into His image, and then we become blessed, as He describes in the Beatitudes. We experience the blessings of God, and we exhibit them. We are blessed as we follow Christ, and we come to know true joy, and then we become a blessing to others. And when we look at the text this morning, verses 11 and 12, we know there's a background to the Beatitudes, the last one that we look at this morning. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are merciful for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Here it is. Rejoice. Here it is. Be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we look at those verses this morning, we are reminded that there is there are blessings that come with following Christ and their challenges, and they bring great joy. There's a parallel text in Luke, the sixth chapter of this persecution text. Luke puts it this way, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. Be glad and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers persecuted the prophets before you. But Luke goes on and he adds this, three verses later, woe, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. When we look at verses 10, 11, and 12, the last of the Beatitudes, they have to do with joy. They remind us that the way will not be easy, first of all. Secondly, we need to be careful when, when we are striving for this kind of joy and blessedness that we aim to hit the right target. And then finally, Christ's blessedness produces, obviously, real joy. The way will not be easy. It may seem rather odd this morning that I would pick a text like I told you, I don't think I'd, I picked it, that has to do with persecution. Did you hear Ildiko this morning? She lived through it. Few of us have lived through the kind of persecution and suffering that she and her Hungarian-Romanian brothers and sisters lived through. There are Christians around the globe in other places that endure real persecution, real insult, real injury, real slander, every day. He says, the way will not be easy. Whoever walks with Christ will be persecuted. It literally means to be driven away, put to flight, to be harassed. They will be insulted, reviled, taunted like a child in front of one's schoolmates. And they will falsely say all kinds of evil against you in my name because of me. That's really, you will be slandered wrongly accused. In fact, it's a kind of blasphemy because you see what people are doing is they're making fun of not just you or me. If we're being persecuted for Christ's sake, they're making fun of whom? Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. Luke gives some more details if you were listening. He says, you will be hated, you will be ostracized, you will be insulted, you will be scorned. And Jesus warned his disciples about this. You'll remember in Matthew, the 10th chapter, we've already looked at this. And later in Mark, the 13th chapter, he says, I'm going to send you out as sheep among what? Wolves. You will be arrested. You'll be imprisoned. You'll be turned over to the magistrate. You're going to be tried before the courts. You're going to be whipped in the synagogues. You're going to be betrayed by your family, by your brothers, by your children, and even by your parents. And you're going to be hated because of Jesus' name. 
You see, if we follow Jesus Christ to some degree or another, it may not be the same kind of persecution that some Christians are suffering in other countries, in dark places, where we have missionaries that we cannot name their names because if they were known to be missionaries, they would be imprisoned. We may not suffer that kind of persecution, but we must face indignity and insult and ridicule, bearing the mark of Jesus. Paul puts it this way. His goal was not only to know the power of the resurrection, but he knew in order to know the power of the resurrection, he must also do what? He must experience the fellowship of his suffering. The way is not easy, Jesus warns. Secondly, he says, we have to be real careful when we look at this whole business about persecution and the joy and gladness that comes out of it that we're aiming to hit the right target. He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of what? Righteousness. You see, the goal is righteousness. It is integrity. It is virtue. It is rightness. It is to be right in the presence of God. And when Jesus goes on to describe this in the Sermon on the Mount, he describes it as perfect righteousness. You see, our righteousness, if we're going to follow him, must be better than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and their hypocrisy, and their legalism. He he goes on at the end of chapter 5, remember, he says, therefore be what? Well, be sort of okay. No, he says be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we know what that means. It means the goal is to become who God created us to be, to fulfill his purpose fully, to walk in perfect communion and closeness with him, and to glorify him in all that we say and do. It doesn't mean legalistically that we never do anything wrong because we're all sinners, but it means that we fulfill His purpose for us, and that is to be in communion with Him perfectly. Let me say a a word of caution here. You know, not all opposition is persecution. Uh, There are some religious persons that deserve rebuke. They claim that they're being persecuted, but they're not. Some religious persons should be opposed because they are not seeking righteousness. They may feel like they're being persecuted, but they're not really being persecuted. They're being corrected. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for their hypocrisy and their legalism. Let me give some examples. One kind of person that might claim that they are being persecuted because they're in a sect and they're being besieged by the government (laughs) might be a false prophet. They must be exposed and held accountable. And sometimes it even leads to legal action, which might be necessary if they break the law. Another kind of person that really is not fully pursuing righteousness is the faint-hearted. And each one of us falls in that category at one time or another. Those of little faith. Folks, we encounter trials. We encounter trials maybe not every day, but trials are a normal part of life. Those trials are not necessarily persecution. So don't put it in the category of being persecuted when we encounter those trials. Count it a great privilege that God is shaping us and growing us in faith. Another kind of person that might think that they're persecuted are the fear mongers. Some religious leaders sometimes. They will claim that they're being persecuted because they're standing up for Jesus. Well, that may be true, but sometimes it's not. 
Sometimes it's because they use that as an agenda to stir up people with imaginary fears, with straw men, so that people will call, follow them as heroes of the faith, standing against all opposition. Well, folks, we need to stand against that which is evil, but we don't capitalize on it. We are not heroes of the faith when we then manipulate people with fear. Another category is failures. Failures and moral character. A person is not being persecuted when they fail in moral character and the church disciplines them. That's necessary. This isn't persecution. It's redemptive recovery. And it may even lead to punitive action if a person breaks the law. If you have read the news this past week, you know the very first time in all of Catholic history, a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church was convicted by the criminal court of the Vatican and sentenced to five and a half years of prison for embezzlement to the tune of $380 million. Folks, moral failure, and then receiving the consequences of that, that is not persecution, that's correction. The point is this, we need to be pursuing righteousness, and when we suffer and truly suffer righteousness, we need to make sure it is because we have been doing what is right. Peter makes it very clear. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer. Well, you know, how many of us is a murderer? How many of us is a thief? How many of us, oh, evildoer, that covers a broad category. And then he says, troublesome meddler. Hmm. But you will suffer if you suffer as a Christian. And you're not ashamed because you're bringing glory to the name of God. We may suffer persecution, but if we do, it must be because we're suffering for the cause of Christ and what is right. Last of all, Christ's blessedness produces real joy. Rejoice means to thrive. It means to be well and full of life. Be glad means to exalt. It literally means to leap up and not just because the team scores a goal. And it says rejoice and be glad, but that word can, and can be even. Rejoice and even be glad. Even be glad when you're persecuted. Even be glad and give thanks. Truly glad because the persecution is coming. Because you see, there are two signs that we look at. Two signs that set the context for this kind of persecution and whether it's right or not. One sign says that we're doing what is right, the right thing, with the right motives. You notice what he says. People will falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of my name. If the world is opposing you, whatever the situation may be, or even friends revile and rebuke you, whoever they may be, because of Christ, then you're doing right. If your motive is to please God. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So you see, the sign is this. If we're being persecuted for the cause and the name of Christ, we must be doing what is right. But there's another sign. Another, another sign indicates that we're doing wrong, with wrong motives. What did Luke say a few moments ago in chapter 6? 
Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Now, sometimes people will speak well of you. But if everybody speaks well of you all the time in everything you do, watch out. For you see, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. If you never face any resistance, if you never face any kind of rebuke or ridicule, if you face no kind of insult, and all you ever hear are platitudes and honors and praise, and you never hear any resistance, it may say something about one's witness for Christ. You know, Jesus tells us to love all persons, but he never told us that we needed to be loved by all persons. We must not be people pleasers. The reward for enduring persecution, they are the wages of blessedness. Here and now, when we face persecution, if we do, it means that God is refining us. Peter tells us that it is faith that is being tried by fire and it makes that faith pure. James tells us and Paul tells the Romans that that kind of refining process strengthens us and makes us perfect, makes us complete. And then we experience true joy and fellowship with Jesus. Peter puts it this way. Beloved brothers, sisters, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to, to, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with great exultation. You see, if, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of the glory and the spirit of God rest upon you. Here and now, you may face opposition, but it refines you and it strengthens you and it's a witness for Christ. But there's an ultimate reward, and we know this. It's not just here and now. But in, in heaven, we will receive our internal inheritance, which has been preserved for us. Now, I think what's important here is there's a connection between the two. The persecution here and now tries us, purifies us, strengthens us, and prepares us. Prepares us for what? For the eternal glory and the internal inheritance, so that when we get there, we know how to serve. We know how to be God's servant because we have been through the trial and the fire here. Let me apply this with a few principles. First of all, I think this. Joy is a process, not a product. Joy is a process and not a product. It's experiencing God's presence along the way. Joy is not a thing. Joy is not a quantifiable object that can be grasped and measured. It's sort of like the fireflies. It cannot be produced by human work and design and industry. True joy is found only in genuine living relationship. The things that you really joy and value in life are relationships. And it's the same with God. Joy is not found in lifeless things like money and possessions. Joy is not found in transitory things like success and power. It's found only in living relationship. God's joy is a gift. It's a gift, the grace of God. It cannot be earned. It is a reward, but it's not a reward for working. It's a reward because we have become. It's not a reward that we earn by working, but it is a reward that is given to us because we have become the children of God. And it's part of his eternal inheritance that he gives 
to us. You see, this gift is something that cannot be captured, grasped, or bottled. It's not like on-demand TV. You see, we don't capture joy, and you well know that I'm going to mention his name. Whose name am I going to mention? Who was surprised by joy? C.S. Lewis puts it very well. You see, God's joy kind of surprises us at serendipitous times. He does it as his gift. It's not something that we can demand and he does it. All of a sudden, we discover that he has given it to us. And it is momentary. It is fleeting. We must cherish it and we must remember it because it is a foretaste of the hope of the future. God's joy. You see, God's joy comes through hope and peace. We've covered those first two candles. It comes through hope because Jesus came and he fulfilled the hope of the prophets. Jesus is our hope and the rock of our salvation who fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament for the elimination of sin and death and gave us a victory. You see, joy comes through that kind of hope and it comes through peace. He purchased our peace with God by shedding his blood on the cross so that he could pay for my sins. So that I am no longer in hostility with God, but there, and there is no enmity between me and God, but there is peace which he has brought. He is our peace. It's not a mistake. Jesus never made a mistake. But it is not a mistake that this beatitude of rejoicing and being glad in the face of persecution follows the beatitude of blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs they will become the children of God. God's joy grows. It grows through discipleship. And this is what Jesus is telling us in the Beatitudes, faithfully walking moment by moment with Him. No matter what kind of opposition you may face this week, no matter what kind of insults you might encounter a week or a month from now or have in the past, you can be assured that He walks with you every step of the way. His presence in every trial is a constant realization that He loves and cares for you. And even in the midst of trial, He may bring you a deep contentment and peace, a moment of fleeting joy, which is a promise of the future to come. And as we walk step by step by step, and we have those moments of fleeting joy that remind us of that, we grow in assurance that our future hope is eternally grounded in Him. For we know this, that someday our joy will be made complete. Jesus tells His disciples, you know, don't rejoice in the fact that you've got all this power I've given you. He sent them out to do what? To heal people and to cast out demons. And they did. They were successful. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine James and John and Peter and Andrew going out healing people? And God doing miracles through them? And then exercising demons and seeing them come out and people being made whole? And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. That's not what your real joy is in. There's a joy that goes beyond that, he says. Rejoice in this fact. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Someday, our joy will be complete. It may be that he comes today. Or tomorrow. It may be that He comes before we pass away. His first advent will be fulfilled by His second coming. And we earnestly look toward His second coming. 
We will sing about that in our invitation hymn, another Advent. But even if He does not come before we depart, we know this, that if we have walked with Him day by day, encountering every opposition and persecution, we have stuck with Him through thick and thin, He promises us the eternal joy of our internal inheritance in heaven. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this promise that Your Son, Jesus Christ, did not abandon us when He returned to heaven to be with You, that He has sent His Spirit among us, that He Himself walks with us. He has promised that He would not depart from us, and we give thanks. No matter what we encounter, He walks with us and He talks with us. And we know that we are His own and Your own. Our prayer is this morning, as we look to the second coming, despite the darkness that deepens around us, despite a world that is grieving all about us, that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Our prayer is this morning, if somebody is listening or watching or even here, who has not known the hope of Christ's salvation, the certainty of eternal life, that that person might come to a conviction of his or her sin, Say, I know that I cannot save myself. I know my hope is in Christ alone. I surrender myself to you, O Lord Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Redeem me through your shed blood. Give me the gift of eternal salvation and the assurance that I will be in my heavenly home with you, O Lord. This is our prayer this morning that someone will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.